Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's in the Scottish government's interest, not just to protect, obviously, public services, but also to show further divergence from the rest of the UK. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. The other factor playing into all this is Brexit. Neither political party will even contemplate relaxing EU migration. This is the elephant in the room, isn't it? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. I have found myself yet again uh, deciding that I'm reading all of the wrong places for my political news today because uh, where I should have been reading this morning, first of all, should have been The Sun because that is where Rishi Sunak has written his piece about the illegal uh, migration bill that he's presenting today, part of his promise to, quote, stop the boats, this uh, attempt to reduce the number of people who are crossing the channel uh, into the UK that way, mm-hmm. a big plan, uh, part of one of his, of course, five key pledges uh, for what he's going to do. I mean, I always had you down as a sun reader, Stephen, but <laughs> never mind. But a recurring theme of his premiership is how he keeps getting sidetracked by the sins of his predecessors. Economically, really, there's no bigger example than the fallout from Liz Truss and her mini-budget, but there's a much longer list than that. There's Gavin Williamson, who, of course, quit over bullying allegations. There's Nadim Zahawi, who was dismissed after questions over his tax affairs. Oh, but hang on a second. King of unfinished business, surely, Boris Johnson. He's got two inquiries to his name. Partygate, uh, adding to the controversy around that, is that we have learned that the government is paying his legal fees, a cost of £220,000 and also the independent public inquiry to examine the preparedness and the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So COVID, I think right now, rather than actually the small boats is what everyone is talking about, certainly uh, following on from the Telegraph's lockdown files. Yeah, well, we're joined now by the journalists who put those files in the public domain, or at least some of them. Isabel Oakshot, Talk TV's international editor, leaked 100,000 of Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages to The Telegraph, breaking a non-disclosure agreement which had given her access to the exchanges in order to help her co-write his book, The Pandemic Diaries. Now, Matt Hancock has accused her of a, quote, massive betrayal and breach of trust. But she argues that breaking the NDA was in the public interest, given that the messages show that the then Health Secretary and his aides discussed threatening MPs who attempted to vote against lockdown measures, among many, many other revelations. So I'm delighted to say we've got on the line now Isabel Oakshot herself. Thanks so much, Isabel, for being on the programme. Good morning. And yes, I'm very definitely not Elizabeth. Um, That's me. Just to clarify, clarify, I didn't actually breach a non-disclosure agreement. Um, There was a much weaker uh, voluntary confidentiality undertaking in a wider written agreement. Um, That sounds very boring, but is actually quite important legally. So I just thought I'd clarify that. So when you signed this agreement... um to write the book you found yourself in a position where you were going to come across a treasure trove of information I wonder what your thinking was when you signed it did you think that what you were going to find might be actually quite dull 
Um, of course not, because this was the man that was at the heart of the response to the pandemic. The only reason for me uh, as a vocal critic of lockdown policy to work with Matt Hancock was to get as near as I could to the truth of the matter. Uh, I'm good at what I do. And I thought that it was uh, pretty likely that if I worked with Matt Hancock, I would be able to help him produce a book that gave the public as much information as I could get out of him uh, and put that into the public domain. Um, now, I certainly didn't expect uh, to be given an enormous dump of ministerial communications uh, in the manner of these WhatsApp messages. I mean, personally, I wouldn't share the content of my phone with anybody, uh, never mind a politician. Um, so I think it was quite surprising um, that he chose to do this. But we did draw very heavily from the WhatsApps for the project. They were actually an incredibly important element of it. Uh, and it was simply that we didn't have time to go through all 2.3 million words of the messages um, that more of them weren't included in the book. In fairness to Matt Hancock, mm. um, he did usually lean towards disclosure. Uh, and he had said in the prologue to the book that he'd made it all available to the public inquiry. My concern uh, is that the public inquiry is many, many years off in terms of actually getting anywhere with conclusions. We cannot afford but, to wait years Isabel, and years. But that's not out. what the leader of the COVID inquiry has said. And in fact, very unusually, the leader of the COVID inquiry responded in saying that the inquiry was going to happen very swiftly, which has led to accusations of, you know, why did you release the messages to the newspaper well, well, hang on a rather minute. than hang giving on it to the inquiry? Let, let me address that. Let me yeah. address that head on. Um, when's the deadline for the inquiry to report? Yeah, no, they haven't given one, but clearly they're oh, well, in the precise. opening stages. You, you must not be surely. So but if they had your information, they perhaps could put a deadline. Well, well, so there is no deadline. There is no deadline. Uh, we know for a fact that the contracts that have been issued, the legal contracts that have been issued for uh, protecting the various people involved in giving evidence stretch to five years. So that gives you some indication uh, of the length of these preliminary legal contracts. So look, I, I'm, I'm sorry if people are so naive as to imagine uh, that this inquiry is going to wrap up anytime soon. Uh, but A, it has no deadline. B, we know the contracts run to at least five years. And C, um, can I ask if you've read the terms of reference? No, I, I haven't. Perhaps you have. Well, there tell we us. go. There's a surprise. Most journalists haven't bothered doing that. But I have. And I can tell you that is a lifetime's work. Those terms of reference, I could spend a year on each one of them and still wouldn't be able to do it justice. Completely impossible to expect this to come up with anything sensible anytime soon. So against that backdrop, in that context, it was absolutely incumbent on me and I believe on anyone else who is sitting on important information about the pandemic response to get it out there because you're not going to get answers from the public inquiry now. But is this the best way to do it, to 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 put that information what, what in in the public? Think, what do you think? Is, what do you think would be the best way to do it? Well, I don't have the. It wasn't my information to be handing out, so I'm wondering what what made you think this was the best way to get that information to the public I wonder domain. What you think the alternatives would be? I mean, it's not the public inquiry, so what what's the alternative? Me to put it all on the internet in a massive information dump, unfiltered with loads of personal details? Couldn't do that. So the best way to do this 
was to work with a phenomenal team of investigative journalists to pick through all that information and alight only on matters of the public interest, mm, because but, that's but, critical here. Of course, yes. I could have created a website and just dumped 2.3 million words onto it. That would not have been a responsible thing to do. But the problem with all of this is that do we... It's not in the public interest. But the, Isabel, the problem with this, though, is that you're coming from it in from a very partial point of view. You you have been an anti-lockdown journalist, and that clearly seems to be the narrative that is emerging from the coverage in The Telegraph, so that actually there isn't as much clarity and light and definitive kind of understanding of that period, important period in UK history, as, the, as we might like to kind of understand. Well, of course not. Of course there isn't. Nobody's claiming this is the entire and full and complete story. That is is for a public inquiry. You know, there's no point in not publishing something that's in the overwhelming public interest because bits of information are missing. And it is, in co of course, entirely open uh, to anyone else who has bits of information or uh, things that run counter um, to the narrative that we've seen appearing to put that in the public domain. But people can't complain that it's a partial account whilst withholding any information that demonstrates it to be so. Well, you've hinted that there's more to come in terms of revelations regarding the Treasury and the now Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. If you've released these messages in the public interest and it isn't about the money, the business of news, why not hand those over now in one go? Well, those revelations have already been out there. Let me just address this whole thing about it being for the money. I mean, if anyone thinks that I did this for money, they must be absolutely insane. I have plenty of jobs, lucky enough to have a very healthy income. I don't need to take these brickbats in return for a few pieces of silver. You know, this is so much more important than money. This is about the overwhelming public interest in mm. millions of people knowing what was done in their name, how in some cases they were misled, in some cases the government got things right and credit where credit's due. Look, any politician in these circumstances is going to make mistakes. These were unprecedented uh, mm. sets of circumstances. We didn't know what we were facing at the beginning. So nobody no. is saying they got everything right. No, no, absolutely not. But look, the sage argument is that there was a lot of expertise within the UK that the UK should have done better in terms of preventing deaths. So going kind of to the substance, actually the argument would be the government in the UK did not lock down soon enough is that an argument that you think holds much water? Well, look, I've never been a critic, actually, of the first lockdown. I think it's a bit of a sideshow, given the two years of devastating uh, policies that we experienced to focus um, purely on the first few weeks. But I think that there's an argument um, that that lockdown, in fact, I, I consider it a very good argument that that lockdown was absolutely necessary. It's not for mm. me to judge whether we should or shouldn't have locked down earlier. But the reality is um, that going forward, if you take this over a two year period, uh, we didn't do well um, by repeated lockdowns. We now know so, that they had tremendous, dreadful collateral damage. OK, so is this a problem then of the Johnson government? Is this overall a Conservative Party issue? Are you trying to bring down the Sunak government from this? What is what is the kind of drive then? 
Well, I think I've been very clear about the drive. I mean, certainly not trying to bring down the Sunak government. I mean, I've got greatest respect for Rishi Sunak. I wrote a... Um, so it's not a conservative a conservative party problem? Those MPs are the MPs that made those decisions? I mean, many of... Well, I think it's, I think it's a problem for everybody who nodded those policies through. I mean, the Labour, the Labour Party... Um, put up very little resistance. They they didn't interrogate or do their job as an opposition during that period at all. If anything, they were pushing for more and harder of the but policies all of, that we But all of the decisions were made by Johnson and by a Conservative cabinet. I mean, the re- responsibility for the decision-making is, is Conservative, surely, and that implicates the current government now. Well, I, I'm not quite sure what you're getting at. I mean, that's demonstrably true. I'm not a member of any political party. I don't have a political party agenda here. I have an agenda. Uh, if if I have any agenda, it is that this never, ever happens again. The Financial Times reporting today that the Cabinet Secretary Simon Case is considering standing down over the messages that he exchanged with Matt Hancock. Are there other people in the revelations to come who should be worried about their jobs? It's not a perspective that I've really looked at it from. And I think that Simon Case is in some difficulty here. I think that some of the tone of his messages was very inappropriate. He's supposed to be impartial. He's supposed to be a a, a person of the highest integrity, which he may well be, but that doesn't always come across in these messages and certainly in terms of the tone of them. I don't want to criticise his ability to do his day job. Um, So, look, I think he is in uh, some difficulty, but I'm not focused on scalps here. Uh, I'm focused on lessons being learned by Mm. whoever is in charge, whoever may come to be in charge of our country, because another pandemic could happen at any point. Yeah. um, No, and I think that is really fascinating. And for our listeners, Isabel, who are, you know, to be honest, less focused on the sort of um, health of individuals, more on financial health, on economics. From the Hmm. investor point of view, I'd be kind of interested in, in your view. Does I think what I actually take away from it is that this shows a level of insularity in terms of policymaking and journalism in the UK that's actually really bad for Britain. I mean, I don't know whether Matt Hancock was naive in, in um, giving you so much data to do the job around the book and then not expecting it to, to you to be tempted to reveal it or, or to use it in another way. But it kind of shows a very small pool of decision makers. And, and that is a kind of concern, I think, for investors, you know, as long as, as as well as the idea of of kind of expertise and how much expertise is trusted, how do you think about that? I mean, we have to convince domestic yes. international investors that yeah. UK is a credible um, place for business. Yeah, which is a, a pretty hard sell at the moment, I <laughs> yes. think, particularly as we're literally the government is literally about to hike corporation tax in a way uh, that many of your um, you know, your listeners will have some grave concerns about. Um, look, I think what's in there, are, there's lots in these messages um, that is illuminating in terms of the thinking that was going on about the economy. Uh, I mean, we see, for example, um, that Matt Hancock, this is a revelation already uh, in the Telegraph over the weekend, uh, that Matt Hancock deliberately ignored um, advice from Chris Whitty, the, the then chief medical officer. Uh, that the mandatory period of isolation uh, for people who had potentially been in contact with somebody infected by the virus 
He recommended that that should be reduced by a period of many days. Uh, Matt Hancock didn't want to do that because he didn't want it to look like the government had got it wrong before. Now, each day of somebody being economically inactive has huge repercussions, whether for their own small business or the company they work in, or whatever it is else that they're supposed to be producing. So we see a kind of casualness there about the devastating economic impact for which all of us here in the UK uh, and of course in other countries are still really paying the price. And I think that the messages uh, reveal quite an interesting, if I could put it diplomatically, attitude towards Alok Sharma, who was then uh, running the business department. You know, I, it was quite clear from those messages uh, that Mr. Hancock considered Alok to be of inferior intellect uh, and was pretty disparaging uh, about the business secretary's attempts to fight the corner of business. Well, uh, and I think that is extraordinarily interesting. On that point, what did you make, given that you've seen more of these messages than pretty much anyone else, what do you make of how these senior people communicated with each other about these very serious issues? Well, what I can say is that Rishi Sunak, um, who was then the Chancellor, was actually quite careful about the use of WhatsApp. I mean, there is a, a file of his um, interactions with Matt Hancock. It's quite small compared to some. I mean, certain ministers were quite remarkably indiscreet. Pages and pages and pages of messages um, full of gossip and uh, things that we at The Telegraph won't be publishing because they're not in the public interest. Um, but I think that this was a, a, a completely unusual time in which normal government interactions were not taking place. So I think we can cut them some slack for the use of rapid social media platform messaging systems to make decisions. Because, you know, in the end, they weren't having meetings in the normal way. They weren't bumping into each other in corridors. Frankly, there was probably no more efficient way of doing things. Uh, but that does need to be accountable. Okay, Isabel Oakshot, thank you so much for joining us and on Bloomberg UK thank Politics you. and bringing us uh, all of that insight into that reporting, the lockdown files uh, in the Telegraph newspaper. Um, such a fascinating conversation. I think we touched on so many aspects of this story. And as we've been hearing, there's plenty more messages uh, in that treasure trove to come as well. It's interesting to hear those reflections on how people within the government were communicating and Isabel's thoughts on, on the tone that was used and some of them and, and how that reflects on them. And of course, Isabel used to be the political editor of the Sunday Times at a time when these sort of conversations happened in dark corridors in Westminster. Now that they're just happening on WhatsApp, does it change anything? Is it a case of twas ever thus? It's interesting to hear that Rishi Sunak was minding what he texted to whom. Yeah, absolutely. I think people will be dropping WhatsApp like a hot potato, surely, um, with those sorts of revelations. But yeah, very interesting to uh, have that conversation with Isabel Oakeshott. Let's turn to another conversation now. In the week that the Prime Minister wants to focus on reducing migration on small boats across the Channel, new research published has shown how public attitudes on migration have shifted. A survey from the Policy Institute at King's College London showing that the proportion of people who think employers should prioritise British-born workers over immigrants has more than halved since 2009. So that figure coming down from 69% of people who should be favouring British-born workers to just 30% of people thinking that last year. More research to come from King's on this subject later in the week. We've been discussing this with Jonathan Portis, who's a professor of economics at King's. He's also a senior fellow at UK in a changing Europe. So um, what we're looking at is the uh, changes to the immigration system overall and the nature of immigration to the UK, particularly since Brexit. Um, so um, what we've seen is that 
contrary to the expectations of uh, both of the public and frankly of, of experts like myself who got this wrong, who were expecting that uh, we'd see a significant drop in immigration. Um, actually, what's happened has been more of a shift in the nature of immigration. Uh, so we've got more people coming from outside Europe, fewer people coming from inside Europe. But actually, immigration overall is running at record levels. That's partly driven by special factors like uh, people coming from Ukraine and Hong Kong. But work-related migration and student migration have actually increased by quite a bit. And as I said, that's driven by people coming from outside Europe. So that's one big surprise. But the second big surprise is that despite this, uh, or perhaps because of it, who know, we, we're not really sure, um, there has been this significant and sustained positive shift in public attitudes toward immigration. So if you ask voters, you know, overall, do you think immigration has had a, a positive or a negative impact on the UK? Um, that began shifting up some time ago, and we've now got half of the population who say it's had a positive impact and only about a third um, who say that it's a negative impact. And that's a pretty big shift. It hasn't you know, happened suddenly. It's happened progressively over time. And similarly, if you ask people, uh, do they think immigration should come down or go up? Um, well, overall, the balance is still in favor of people saying it should um, be reduced. Uh, that um, the number of people who think it, it should be reduced by uh, um, has, has gone down quite a lot, again, uh, consistently over a period of time, whereas the number of people who think it should be increased or remain the same has increased very substantially. Um, and Jonathan, and as, as you, sorry, you said that ahead. part of the reason that you were surprised by the data is that the nature of immigration has changed. I wonder whether that causes a problem for the Office for Budget Responsibility when it's putting together its growth forecasts, because it assumes, doesn't it, the productivity of a migrant worker. But if that nature has changed, maybe the sums are wrong. Maybe the Chancellor's got a bit more headroom. Um, that's possible. We don't know it yet. Of course, one of the reasons for the shift in the immigration system post-Brexit um, from free movement uh, on the one hand to this system that applies to everybody uh, wherever they're coming from and prioritizes people with who are more highly paid and highly skilled, that was supposed to try and get, you know, the supposedly, to, to put it bluntly, the immigrants who we want or we need higher productivity, higher salary. So you might hope that over time, indeed, um, immigration would be more of a boost to growth than it has in the past, that the people coming in wouldn't be just average, they'd actually be better than average. Um, now, the OBR, as you say, hasn't taken account of that yet. So per perhaps... Um, we might see an even more of a positive impact from immigration on growth. But the OBR, and I think this is not unreasonable, has, is essentially saying, well, let's wait and see. Let's wait a few years and see what the data actually says, because, frankly, we don't yet have the data to be certain that the new system is working in the way which uh, the government and, and perhaps economists would like it to work. And so to go back to your survey, if one of the main findings is that attitudes are surprisingly positive towards immigration. When you listen to the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary talking about uh, their policies on small boats uh, across the Channel, how do you square those two uh, ideas? Um, well, I think that there is no question that, uh, um, you know, that, that, that what the data also shows is that people want a sense of to other things, 
or three other things perhaps you know what do they want from an immigration system they want an immigration system that allows people who we need who will contribute who will work um in in jobs where where they'll contribute to the economy um they want uh, a sense of control that is to say that the borders are being controlled and that's clearly one of the issues with the small boats uh, 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 thing and they want a sense of fairness that that people are being treated fairly uh, we uh, collectively as a country is being treated fairly but also that people who come here are being treated fairly so I think uh, there isn't a contradiction in principle between saying yes we want people lots of people to come here to work and study as they are and that's good but uh, we want to make sure our borders are controlled and we don't want people crossing in an irregular fashion in small boats. Um, where I think that the political debate about is what is fairness? Now the government is arguing that it's not fair that people should come here in small boats and quote, jump the queue. They should come here in safe legal routes. On the other hand, the simple fact is those safe and legal routes do not exist. If you are an Afghan who supposedly ought to be able to come here under one of these safe and legal routes, you simply cannot because the government has essentially made it impossible to do so by a combination of deliberate policy and incompetence. So we have, you know, so I think this, and this is to some extent a personal view, you know, that the public has quite a different attitude towards how we should treat, say, uh, uh, so people coming from countries like perhaps Albania, where the drivers may indeed be in a significant number of cases, at least economic, and people who are crossing the world, you know, from Afghanistan and are coming here by boat um, because they have no alternative and because they have a uh, um, a personal uh, connection with the UK because perhaps they were employed by the UK in some capacity in Afghanistan or they have family here. And I think, you know, again, this is somewhat of a personal view that uh, um, pe people would are, are not necessarily going to be. Uh, are, are supportive of the idea of getting the system back under control and making it fair. But fairness does not necessarily mean saying to um, Afghans or Syrians, mm. uh, right, we're going to try and put you on a plane in Rwanda or failing that, lock you up in a camp indefinitely, which appears to be the government stated policy at the moment. That was the economics professor Jonathan Portas from King's College London. Well, that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Woolcock. Our audio engineer was Marufal Hussein. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Caroline Hetke. And I'm Lizzie Burden. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi everyone, I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.